Hello, dear listener, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. We are in the middle of a world pandemic, in case you haven't noticed, and uh, therefore, we're going to be doing another one of our special episodes uh, during the COVID-19 crisis. And this one uh, specifically addresses the needs of you, dear listener. We've asked uh, many people uh, on uh, Twitter and uh, on Patreon if they have any questions for us and us being myself, Neil Morrison, uh, MotoGP journalist, also joined today, thankfully, by MotoMatters.com's David Emmett. Hello, David. Hello, Neil. And the font of all things World Superbike and indeed MotoGP. We've got Steve English in the house as well. Hello, Steve. Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. Yeah, I'm slightly alarmed by uh, just how long your hair is getting, Steve. It's never been this length <laughs> before. You do realize yeah, you're allowed to go out and get a haircut now. It's quite terrifying. You're actually not allowed to go out and get a haircut in Ireland, so that's the reason why I haven't done it. Obviously, I could go and cut my own hair, but that has never ended well for me. <laughs> Excellent law-abiding citizen that you are, uh, Steve. I'm impressed with that. Uh, yeah, so as I said, uh, guys, this is um, this is a show where we answer your questions, and we've asked uh, some of our some of our followers on social media, uh, some of our uh, kind donators as well on Patreon, um, to uh, to ask some questions for us, and uh, we're going to be going through. A selection of those but just before we get into our, our listeners questions um i have some questions for my guests of my own and i want to say that uh, or i want to ask obviously it's been a, a bit of a strange time but what do you think has been uh, one of the few positive things that has come out of uh, the recent uh, covid19 crisis for you on a personal level i'm going to start with you mr emmett what about you uh what's come out of it is um I got to spend more time with my wife. Um, I mean, I married her, so uh, you know, I do actually enjoy her company. Uh, and I did over six hundred kilometres of cycling last month, so um, I think that's the most I've done since I was in my thirties. So uh, that is definitely uh, that's definitely a good thing to come out of it. And you're sporting a nice new tan as well, from what I could see. You know, that's from my uh, blurry, from, uh, pixelated screen. It's from being outside. I, it, you know, it's you know, outside. It's not a place I get to very often. But uh, now, uh, uh, also combined with the glorious weather we've had, um, uh, I've been a able to go out a lot. So that's definitely been a positive for me, despite not having racing. Yeah, and lockdown in Ireland, Steve, hasn't maybe been as strict as some other countries on uh, mainland Europe, but. Uh, You've been in lockdown nonetheless over there in Dundalk. Uh, how about yourself? What's uh, one positive thing that's come out of uh, the last three months for you? Well, it, it's still been pretty strict here. You've had where most businesses have closed down, any gyms, golf clubs only reopened in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you had to stay within 5K where you lived. So there were some restrictions and depending on where you are, the 5K limit can be quite restrictive. But for me, it's been quite a lot of fun, actually, to be honest. Uh, I've spent the last 10 years traveling pretty much the entire year so i've never really seen ireland in april and may from whenever i left college so it's actually been quite good to see that the sun shines here there's a lot of things to still do and uh yeah it's actually been dare i say it quite quite nice to be at home for this length of time and gotten into a bit of gardening which is a lot less boring than i thought it was going to be but I'm now absolutely obsessed with dandelions and weeds, so I've just replaced one addiction for another, really. A, a, a question for, uh, for for the both of you two. Is this the longest that you've been at home? or how? I mean, for me, this is the longest I've been at home since probably 2009. What about you two? 
Uh, yeah, I haven't thought about this too much. It's, um, I mean, I've only been working in MotoGP since 2015, so certainly it's been the longest I've been at home since um, since before then. Um, but yeah, it's uh, even when I wasn't working in this industry, uh, you would normally have some sort of holidays or trips home or trips to see friends in other places planned. And uh, well, there's obviously been none of that in the last three months. And um, I can't really see myself leaving Barcelona this summer as well, just because, well, you know, um, airplane prices will probably be quite high. Uh, there's still a bit of a risk when you're traveling. Um, so yeah, yeah, this has been um, the longest. I'm not sure exactly when, but probably since I was back at school, to be fair. What about you, Steve? Uh, for me, this is the longest since the, actually I can tell you the exact date as well, the 19th of May 2011. That was the first trip I had whenever I started working for Ericsson and ever since that day, it's pretty much just been constant travel for me. So that was my that was my first trip away just after starting with them and like I said, from that point on, it was whenever I was an engineer, it was 10 months travel a year and then whenever I've moved into being a journalist, it's been seven eight months easy each year as well so this is the longest in pretty much 10 years nice nice and do you think you guys will miss it when we get back up and running again we have to do a bit of traveling whenever that might be yes and no i mean uh you know it's nice to be able to uh sort of go out cycling three or four times a week um it's nice to spend so much time at home but i would really love to uh, i mean you know i gave up a perfectly good job uh, to to do this uh, because I love motorcycle racing and I just really um, would like to be at a racetrack and especially Sunday, race day, that's the day that I really miss. You know, like practice is always interesting, but race day is, um, it's that, that feeling, that, that nervousness that you get before the flag drops, that, that's what I've been missing. Yeah, and I think the same for me as well because... Like I said, from whenever I started with Ericsson, it was constant travel, and it was travel that I didn't really enjoy as much. I was I, I was doing a job that I didn't mind, but not a job that I loved. And uh, whenever we get back to racing, you're back to doing a job that you love. And for all of us, it's going to change probably how we spend our time between races. You might suddenly feel that you know there's there's better things to be doing rather than just working flat out, and that will change for a lot of people but once we get back to a racetrack everyone's going to be excited we're going to be the exact same as everyone watching at home everyone wants to see what's going to happen this year and uh, we're no different to that yep well at the time of recording we are still uh, well on track to uh, go racing in the middle of July uh, there has been no changes to that and we do believe that there'll be um, a calendar presented by Dorna at least for the European stage of the season possibly the entire season uh, next week so uh, we'll obviously have uh, another show with some reaction to uh, to that calendar um, not too far away but uh, before that today's show obviously is about uh, about the dear listener that uh, keeps the Panic Pass podcast going and uh, well we have a whole host of uh, questions lined up from them um, a lot of you have got in touch via Twitter and uh, appreciate that. We're going to start off with uh, an interesting question because this is quite uh, pertinent, maybe around three or four years ago, and it relates to uh, the World Superbike Paddock, Steve, a place that you have been calling your home since, uh, what, 2016? Uh, this question is from uh, Evil Mark H. Mark H., hello to you. And you have asked, uh, what's the future alternative for supersport racing? Now, this was uh, something discussed uh, a couple of years ago, as I said, um, obviously, 
600cc motorcycles aren't selling at a massive rate really anywhere in the world. Um, yet we still have a World Super Sport class. Um, it's still providing some pretty entertaining racing. Um, Steve, what is your thought on this? What's the future of Super Sport racing? Or is there an alternative to 600cc road bikes? Well, it all comes back to the old question of where do people think riders are going to continue to learn? And we've got the Supersport 300 class or the junior Supersport class that's named in, in some domestic championships. And therefore, pretty much, you know, the or 3 a 300cc bike. It's for the 390 KTM. It's for 400 Kawasaki. It's for small capacity bikes. And, you know, they've done a good job of developing that class to make it a little bit closer to a Supersport bike. But when a, a rider jumps onto a supersport bike, it's a big jump up. Now, if you were to take away that class and suddenly you were left with an alternative, I don't, I don't, I don't know what is as good an alternative as the supersport class because whenever you see different people looking for, you know, naked street bikes, you know, thousand cc bikes and this, that, and the other, it's never been a realistic championship to have as a feeder to superbike racing you need to have a supersport class and the one thing about the supersport class is they're still making bikes there's still you know yamaha brought out new or six a couple of years ago there's still talk of you know a new suzuki 600 coming out they still make these bikes kawasaki has only released a new version of their zx6 over the last couple of years as well so manufacturers are still making those bikes riders are still being able to use that championship to learn and as well as that it's a good championship to be able to make a stepping stone from moving from a domestic championship to moving to World Superbikes. And that's been seen this year, I think, in particular by the change to having slick tyres, because that will make it a lot more of a transitional class into a superbike race. And, and I think that's what's positive for it. I think that the demise of the Supersport class was something that was talked about a few years ago, and I think it's been very exaggerated. But what's going to be interesting to see is what happens whenever we come back from the lockdown, because a lot of teams are going to struggle to raise the finances, to still keep sponsors happy. And that's what's going to be a bigger challenge to the Supersport class rather than, you know, the, the sales of 600s for different manufacturers. David, what are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I think uh, I think Steve has mostly nailed it. Uh, the, the, uh, I think what you have to understand first of all is that um, uh, World Superbikes production racing is about racing what people sell uh, and what they want to sell and what the manufacturers want to build. And as long as the manufacturers want to build, um, you know, six hundred, um, basically middleweight super sport bikes, uh, then they'll they'll keep racing them. And as a racing class. I mean, they are proper, uh, uh, well, yeah, they're proper racing motorcycles. I mean, you know, they are uh, actually fed sports motorcycles. Um, if you look at the Supersport 300 class, uh, that uh, came about because the manufacturers had found this, it sort of found this new class in production motorcycling uh, of smaller capacity sports uh, uh, sports bikes because you know p young, or people older people younger people all sorts of people were buying smaller capacity sports bikes just because they're, they're you know they're they're a lot of fun they're not very powerful but they're uh, but they are a lot of fun to uh, to actually ride um uh, and so that that created that class uh, and as long as there are sort of uh, enough uh, enough middleweights um you know there's even talk of um 
uh, Triumph, I think, building uh, 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 building another. Well, there used to be the Daytona 675, you know, uh, a, a sports middleweight. So, I think as long as factories are interested, then uh, and building the bikes, we're going to be racing uh, racing super sports. But um, I mean, it is a question because it is. Uh, it, it used to be basically almost the biggest the, the, the biggest selling class on um, uh, it, certainly in Europe and uh, and uh, in the US to a certain extent but definitely in Europe uh, and now they we only sell a handful of them but uh, people are still buying and so we keep racing them like there is a, a certain part of me that would love to see a GS Cup and things like that but not to have it as a world championship just to have it as an invitational round like what you used to get with the, the BMW Cup and MotoGP where you had something a little bit different just as an invitational race and I think something like that could be quite interesting depending on where you put it and what day you put it on and things like that but for me I think the super sport class is an important class to keep and I think that's been shown by the desire by manufacturers to stay racing in the class. Okay, well, there is uh, some interesting observations there from the two of you guys. Thanks for that. Um, we're going to move on quickly to uh, Philip Friend, um, who has uh, sent in a number of questions, but on a loosely similar topic, we're, we're still going to be in the world of World Superbike here. Philip wants to know, Steve, pretty sure you can clear this up for him, why can't you start World Superbike in July? Well, World Superbikes is back in July. It starts on the 31st of July with practice. So it... The reason that the timeframes for everything are as they are is because we'll start the championship back in Spain. MotoGP has the first two races in Jerez, and then we go to Jerez the week after. But for the Superbike teams, this is actually quite positive because we'll be testing in Misano at the end of this month. We'll then go to Catalonia for a two-day test. So we'll actually have four days testing before we get back to racing. So for the Superbike paddock, they're actually going to end up an awful lot more race sharp or at least bike sharp than they would have otherwise so for me it's perfectly normal that MotoGP would come back before World Superbikes we've already had one round we've got less requirements to have rounds as well our championship on a full season is 13 rounds MotoGP's always you know an extra 33% 35% of a season so does it really matter if MotoGP comes back a couple of weeks early in terms of World Superbikes it doesn't does it matter for MotoGP though if it comes back a couple of weeks early? Those two weeks can make a big difference. So for MotoGP, it makes a lot of sense to be back before World Superbikes. Yeah, it's also worth saying that uh, um, with four days of testing, World Superbikes is going to be a lot better prepared than MotoGP because MotoGP and all three Grand Prix classes are basically going to get uh, maybe you know ninety minutes or two hours of uh, of track time on the Wednesday before practice on Friday on the night uh, uh, for that first race in July. So um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think it's a really good plan for World Superbikes, and it's important for them to get racing again. Yeah, and I think it's really important as well that everyone can be prepared like that because we saw a great opening round of the year in Phillip Island and you want to be able to continue in that vein for the next round. And having four days testing gives everyone the chance to get themselves fully back up to speed. So it's it's a big positive for everyone. Okay, great stuff indeed there, Stevie. Thank you very much for that. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a technical question here and I'm going to put this one to you, David. Uh, this is from uh, at Bishop Biker, Ovi. I think is his name. Hi, Ovi, how are you doing? Thanks for your question. And he asks, how much extra power 
do you get using race fuel um, over the four core fuel? It's, uh, it's an interesting question, but really it's sort of the wrong question. Um, if you want to know about uh, MotoGP fuel requirements, it's worth looking at the uh, FIM regulations. It explains uh, there's a very strict set of uh, guidelines for what kind of uh, fuel they can use. Basically, they can use maximum 102, uh, 102 octane fuel. Um, but the fuel in moto jeep or the fuel that's used in moto jeep and in all of racing it's not about um the fuel itself doesn't actually produce more power uh what happens is the fuel uh, has a um base, well the, the higher oxane rating means that it is less likely to ignite uh, for, to uh, to detonate so uh, ignite early that means that you can run higher compressions and with higher compressions you can uh, um uh, the, the higher compression ratios in in an engine generally means you're producing more horsepower um so it just basically means you can run a much higher state of tune in your in your engine and all of the uh, differences all of the um, uh, sort of concentration on racing fuel is about uh, making an engine run more smoothly in a very very high in as high a state of tune as possible so it's more about you know the the the, the engine not going pop um, uh, because of uh, because of pure uh, because of fuel uh, requirements or whatever because of fuel standards uh, than anything else so uh, how much uh, how much extra power you get you don't get any extra power but um, it means that you can uh, tune your engine to produce more power without it going bang. Okay, right. Some uh, pretty comprehensive stuff there from you, Dave. And we've got another one, which is uh, about kind of the logistics and the running of MotoGP. This is uh, the Santi Fernandez fan page. That's at Santi Page. And they've come in with a few questions. I'm not sure whether this is a, a man or a lady, but uh, thank you for getting in touch. They want to know, uh, why do they have practices in order of Moto3? Model GP and Model 2 and not in size order, not how the races run on a Sunday. Uh, well, uh, that's quite simple. Um, it's because of the race timing. Um, Moto GP is the premier class, so it's the most important class, and uh, the race is at 2 p.m. on uh, Sunday. And so the schedule is built around giving Moto GP uh, practice time at 2 p.m. on Friday and at 2 p.m. on uh, Saturday, um, so that they have uh, as similar possible conditions during practice as they uh, uh, as we'll have on the race day. You know, I mean, you can't account for the weather, but at least you've got you know the sun's going to be at the same point in the sky. The temperature will be roughly similar. Um, the asphalt will be absorbing as much heat as normal, uh, and so you've got a predictable. It, it makes it much easier to predict what the tires are going to do um, and how the tires are going to last. Um, so because of that. So that's like your baseline, your MotoGP. Uh, uh, we can't fit Moto3 and Moto2 before um, uh, before 2 p.m. And also, that'd be it would basically mean you know the the, the day would finish at, at whatever it is 3 p.m. or whatever uh, uh, on Friday and Saturday, and it would be less interesting for spectators. You know, the spectators would have a lot a lot of time to with with nothing on track. So, um, uh, but it's mostly just about fitting people in 
uh, fitting practice in. You can't start too early because the track temperature will be too low. And if you send out, I mean, we see this at uh, at Valencia every year. You send Moto Three out. Uh, some mornings, um, uh, especially sort of, you know, Friday, uh, Friday, Saturday morning and track temperatures can be pretty close to freezing sometimes. And that's just, um, it, it, it's really not safe uh, for them to be uh, racing at that time. So, uh, Moto 3 starts first early in the morning because, uh, basically they're the kids and they get the, uh, they, they drew the short straw. Uh, Moto2 get a little bit of an extra lie-in, the lucky people. Uh, but it's all about having, uh, 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 about structuring the schedule so that Moto2 or MotoGP, sorry, can race at 2 p.m. on uh, on Sunday. Okay, there you go, Santi. And don't you be complaining about people getting lie-ins during the race weekend, Dave. I'm pretty sure that you show up to uh, the paddock just after MotoGP FP1 and FP3 is, uh, has ended. So uh, enough of that from you. <laughs> if at all possible yes i mean yeah yeah basically i would i'm uh, i'm all for i i like the qatar schedule because that's much more on my uh, my much more on my body clock the old school qatar schedule dave the the new one's yeah, not half right, as good right, yeah. we used to always love the old schedule because you'd uh you'd wake up in the morning you'd go to the gym and then you go for a game of golf then you get your lunch and then you go back to the hotel and then you go to the track and you had basically a full day before you did any work. And uh, now it's all sort of changed where if you're game of golf and you go straight to the track. So, you know, for me, the new schedule is just not quite as good. Cutting it a bit tight. Yeah, Dave, you know that most people's body clock actually, uh, they move on from that after they've graduated from university or they've uh, got their first job. But there you are in your mid 50s and uh, still uh, doing the same thing, going to bed at 3 a.m., getting up at 11. It's time for you to grow up, man. Yeah, I can't help it if the rest of the world is wrong. <laughs> fair, yeah. I can't, uh, can't argue with that, to be fair. And, uh, you know, David usually is up most nights until about uh, 2, 2 a.m. writing his race reports. So uh, there is a reason why he doesn't rise quite as early as the rest of us on uh, a race weekend. Uh, next one I'm going to put to you, Steve. Now, Steve, when did you... When was your first year in the MotoGP paddock? Am I right in saying it was 2012? End of 2012? I went to a few races in 2011 and then 2012 was my first proper season. I think I went to probably half the races that year. Okay, right. So that was uh, Mark Marquez's title winning year in Moto2. So I think you're pretty well placed to uh, address this next question, which was sent in by Scott Rowe. Spufemism is his uh, Twitter handle. Nice work there, Scott. And thanks for getting in touch. Scott wants to know, Steve, what will finally get the better of Marquez? Will it be time or will it be another rider? Uh, I think injury is a potential one for Mark. I think that someone like Mark isn't going to struggle for motivation at any stage during his career. He's always going to find that winning is enough to keep him motivated. But I think injuries are obviously a concern for any rider. Time, it just depends on how long you think that Mark's going to stay at the top of his game, how long he wants to stay in MotoGP. When you look at what Rossi's been able to do, it's shown that you know, time catches up on all riders, but it also shows that it depends on how long you want your career to be. For Mark, I think another rider is always going to be the big threat because 
we've seen it all the way through history that young riders learn from the experienced riders, the fast riders, and they pick up all the little tricks of the trade and then use them against those riders and push the boundaries on further and further. Mark did something that whenever he came in, he set a new bar for everyone. I don't think we're going to see any rookie come in and do the same thing while Mark's racing, but we'll see someone come in that can be at his level and then improve over time as well. So I think it's always going to be a young rider that comes through that can upset the apple cart. That's the same in pretty much any sport. It doesn't matter how good the established star is. There's always a young gun that can come in and take on that challenge but I think for someone like Mark because of the level that he's at he's going to obviously start with a very good base that's always going to leave him as one of the leading riders in the world as long as he stays injury free. Dave what do you think of that is it going to be time or another rider that eventually displaces Marquez from uh, the top of MotoGP? I I mean I I think it's I mean, uh, injury is a very good point that Steve says. The, the, the big difference between uh, Valentino Rossi and Mark Marquez is that Rossi always rode within himself. Or, well, not within himself. He pushed the limit, but he didn't crash very much, whereas Mark falls off a lot. And I really think that Mark uh, uh, is... Um, uh, the the risks that he takes are all within a limit. So um, he might crash a lot, but usually when he crashes, he pushes a lot at slow speed. So if he's you know when he crashes, um, it tends to be sort of slow speed high sides, which are bumps and bruises and scrapes, but nothing uh, very serious. But we have seen you know he's had. Uh, surgery on both shoulders uh, to, to, to fix the, the fact that he keeps on uh, uh, dislocating them uh, and I think that, that is a genuine risk uh, so I think that's going to catch up with him much more quickly than uh, injury did with Valentino Rossi for example I really think with Rossi you know age is starting to catch up with him and then we'll, we'll get to see in the next couple of years just where it is uh, but also there are other riders maybe maybe Fabio Quartararo is um, uh, sort of the start of the generation of riders who are going to come and um, uh, really challenge Mark it's it already made um, uh, uh, you know Quartararo already made Marquez's life really difficult uh, last year uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how that happen, how that sort of plays out this year and next year. So um, uh, we shall see. I mean, personally, I can't see anyone right now in Moto Two that I think he is really going to cause Marquez trouble. Uh, but we shall have to wait and see. But um, I mean, you you know about as much about this as anyone else, Neil. Uh, what do you think? Is it going to be time, or is it going to be uh, is it going to be another rider who final topples in? Um, yeah, it's a tough one to say. Um, I think, yeah, it's probably going to be, I mean, we're probably looking at one of the best riders ever, uh, if not the best. Um, and you only think that, uh, time will take away some of those really razor sharp natural instincts, um, will maybe just diminish his speed somewhat. Um, and as you say, Maybe for Fabio Quartararo could be one of the guys coming through where he's able to, to eventually beat Marquez over a season. I think there's a, a couple of other riders, Joanne Mir, uh, maybe Brad Binder as well, if you're looking at uh, future generations. Um, but even those guys, as talented as they are, and 
despite the number of incredible feats that they've achieved in the junior classes or even in MotoGP by now, um, I don't think anyone of them was able to quite take the breath away like uh, Mark did when he was in 125s or when he was in Moto2. Um, so I think um, anyone that does come through and beats Mark uh, when he's at his peak will, will have to be considered one of the best, one of the best ever. And those riders don't really come around that often. Um, so I, I, I think it's probably going to be time that uh, that gets the better of Mark and uh, injury, of course, as both you guys have mentioned, I think could be list, um, linked to that as well. So, yes, only time will tell, I guess, uh, in that respect. Um, so we've got a couple of other, uh, let's say, serious questions and then a few uh, pretty interesting, um, less serious ones that I'm going to pose to you. Uh, one that will be answered, I feel, within 30 seconds. And I'm going to put this to you, David, because... Let me just uh, get this up on my screen. Chris, comma, 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 Twitter handle, PidgePie, wants to know, if MotoGP gets started and there are 68 races, will the winner in each category be classed as a world champion? Or will 2020 be a default no championship season? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the FIM president, Jorge Viegas, has, uh, or Jorge Viegas has already said that... Um, uh, these are exceptional circumstances, and so as a result, any number of races will count as a as a championship, even if they only manage uh, sort of the two races at uh, uh, at Jerez, or maybe two races at Jerez and then Brno and then Austria, and we only have five races. It'll still be a championship. And if you go back and look in history, then sort of all through the fifties uh, and sixties, there were somewhere between six and ten races. So to actually have like a ten, twelve. 13 race championship um, is historically accurate. Uh, one for the nostalgia fans, if you like. Uh, but yeah, it's it, whatever we get, these are, it's an exceptional year. It will always be viewed as an exceptional year. I mean, this is going to be everything in every single aspect, every single respect. Whoever wins, there's always going to be, oh yeah, that was the year that there was the coronavirus. Um, but it will still, these are still the best riders in the world and whoever manages to come out on top over, uh, uh, over the however many races we have will still be an exceptionally talented rider. All right, excellent stuff as always, chaps. Thanks for that. Uh, now, the next one, uh, next question comes in uh, through Patreon, and we have um, one from a friend of the show, Martin Darlington, um, who also uh, appears on uh, Friend of the Paddock Pass podcast, uh, Moto Pod, and uh, he wants to talk a little bit about Moto E, and uh, he wants to ask both Steve English and David Emmett, what is um, the aspect of Moto E? that you saw in 2019 that most cheered or encouraged you? And what do you see as the future for electric racing? Can it gradually replace what we have now? And do you think this is Dorna's plan? I'll start with you, David. Um, uh, well, I mean, the thing that cheered me most was the fact that the races were actually quite good. They were quite exciting. And the fans seemed to, in, to enjoy it as well. People sort of did actually, um, uh, th there was a lot more appreciation of the racing than I expected. I expected everyone to slate it, but they didn't. They actually quite liked it. So that was uh, positive uh, for me. Um, what is the future? I mean, the, the point about Moto E at the moment is it's a spec class to get P2 
people used to I, to, to the idea of uh, electric bike racing and while we wait for the manufacturers to start building these bikes and that's basically the, the point behind all of this racing whether it's MotoGP or um, uh, or World Superbikes is uh, the manufacturers want to race what they build uh, they're not building electric bikes yet uh, when they do start building electric bikes then they will definitely be wanting to race uh, electric bikes but that's still at least five probably more like 10 years away uh, maybe even 15 years away so um, yes eventually uh, electric bike racing will replace uh, combustion engines um, but like I say it's still a long way off and Dorna as I say Dorna will organize a racing series for the engines type which a um, uh, which manufacturers want to build so it's uh, it, it, it it's that simple really yeah and I, I quite enjoy electric race and i think it's an interesting challenge i think whenever you look at what happened at the tt with tt zero it was quite an interesting race it was a terrible tt and it should never have classed for race wins on the island because there was too much of a gulf in class between the different teams but in terms of it being an invitational event in terms of it being an engineering exercise the tt zero races were incredible and i think that's kind of technology is what you'd love to see develop on the Grand Prix stage where we have electric races with bikes like what you get with the Mugen and, and different top tier TT0 bikes the Moto E bike as Dave said it's a stock class so it's just to try and introduce people to the races when you talk to the riders they actually quite enjoy the bikes because they feel quite uh, normal in a lot of ways the bike works in a pretty standard way for them but they're incredibly heavy and there's different things that the riders would like to see change over time and that's where you could learn a lot from the TT0 bikes but I think it's something that you have to take a very much a long-term view on. Yeah, speaking personally, um, as soon as I, uh, as soon as there is an affordable electric touring bike uh, which will do sort of two to three hundred kilometers on a charge and recharge in half an hour, 45 minutes. Uh, I'm all over it. I love um, electric bikes. I actually, whenever I'm going downhill, which is, I don't get a lot of opportunities to do that in that Holland. Uh, but um, whenever I do uh, go downhill, I like, to, I like to switch my engine off and just, you know, roll down, coast down because it's such a, it's a, such a different experience. Yeah, and I think that's the one thing for a lot of people, Dave. It's about whether or not you'll ever be able to have the convenience factor with an electric power plant as you do with a normal combustion engine. Because for me, what makes a car really perfect is that I can get 900 Ks out of mine, out of a tank on mine, and it takes 60 seconds to fill it up. If I was to have an electric car here in Ireland, I would be going around looking for power stations. I'd be going around drinking an awful lot of coffee to make up for the fact that uh, you're having to wait for it to charge. I know a lot of people that bought electric cars and immediately changed them because they were right on the limit for their range to get to work and things like that. It's great if you're inside a city and you're only or a town and you're only doing, you know, a handful of miles a day, but if you've got any sort of a commute, they're not a practical car. So as until that changes, everyone's going to be stuck in the same thing and that's where you know the convenience the performance all the positives of a standard internal combustion engine they have to be met by an electric 
engine. Otherwise, people just wouldn't be interested in making a change unless they were doing it solely to have an electric machine. Yeah, well, the difference between a car and a motorcycle is also that every sort of, you know, two uh, two or three hours, you really want to get off and uh, stretch your legs and give your bum a rest. I was going to say, the, re- the main difference is every time you sit in the car, you want to hang yourself, whereas on a bike, you don't, Dave. Always a positive. Always a positive. Right. Okay, great stuff, guys. And uh, just uh, one last uh, final serious question. This comes from uh, Good Doug. That's at Civis Scoticus. I wonder where that man is from. I mean, he wants to know. This is probably uh, quite interesting because, uh, well, both uh, Steve and Dave, you are both uh, freelance journalists, even though you may be working for one particular uh, person more than others. And he wants to know, is it possible to be a legitimate independent journalist in either paddock, World Superbike or MotoGP, if you get paid something by Dorna in some capacity, or indeed if you write PR for a team? Are these not massive conflicts of interest? Well, uh, the answer to that is uh, no. Um, I mean, the point about as a journalist, you have a you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to report what you see to the best of your ability and uh, and as fairly and as honestly as possible. And uh, good journalists um, do that and stay where they are. Uh, bad journalists um, who suck up to teams generally don't do so well because also the stuff that they write becomes less interesting because it's less true. Um, some of the most respected journalists in both paddocks um, have, spent, uh, have earned an awful lot of money over the years writing press releases for all sorts of people uh, and yet no one would even think to question their um, uh, their their independence or their, uh, their their ethics so yeah i mean to me you have to again it's 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 a separate role when you're writing a press release then obviously you're trying to put a positive spin on something um uh, but uh, on a particular, uh, you know, on a particular performance. But then, when you go away and then start writing about, uh, when you go back to writing your own race report or news report or whatever analysis, uh, then you're writing about, uh, then you're writing about something else. Then it becomes just purely what you see and. Team managers understand that, and Dorner understands that, and everyone understands that. Um, uh, everyone understands that as a journalist, your responsibility is to write about what you uh, what you see and to try to do it honestly. I think. Okay, nice one, Div. Thank you for that. Um, okay, now to go on something a little lighter hearted, a little more light hearted. Sorry, I should say. Um, now this man uh, might be well known to you, David. This is a question from Jared Earl, World Superbike reporter for MotorMatters.com. Um, and he wants to know from both Steve and both Div, uh, what do you think the prettiest bike in GP or Superbike paddocks is? And you have to choose one for bike design and one for livery. Uh, well, for me, uh, bike design is the Suzuki. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. It's, uh, it is a genuinely beautiful uh, motorcycle. Uh, I like the shape. I like the whole thing. Um, color's quite nice too. Uh, but I have always, uh, well, um, uh, red is my wife's favorite color. And so, um, uh, I like, uh, Ducati livery just because it's, um, 
uh, just because it's an, uh, when they do it properly, when it's a nice strong red color, then it's a uh, uh, then I always like the, uh, the 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 factory Ducati uh, uh, colors. But um, uh, unfortunately, due to sponsorship, most um, uh, most bike liveries are a dog's dinner. I uh, I would agree with Dave on the Suzuki, and I'd also say that the best livery in MotoGP and, and this is this is just a one-off one but remember Suzuki whenever they did the uh, 30th anniversary GSX-R1000 livery at Saxon Ring in 2015 that was where they had the best looking bike on the grid and then made it even better looking so that was an amazing livery um, in terms of the bikes that are out right now I actually quite like the Patronus liveries but more so on the Moto2 bike rather than on the MotoGP bike, but that's just down to the wings and different things like that. In World Superbikes, the Ducati Panigale V-Twin was the best-looking bike that I've seen in a superbike in God knows how long. In terms of the bikes that are out right now, I actually quite like the look of the BMW a lot, and particularly if you look at it in uh, the Smith's racing colours at the TT with Peter Hickman and things like that I think it looks great so that would be my favourite looking superbike yeah I mean if you're looking all time then I would say the, the 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 two bikes that I really loved were the Repsol Honda Dave you love the Repsol Honda livery because you can look at it year on year and see subtle changes gives you that sense that sense of belonging that from whenever you, you for, for me from when I first started watching 500 Grand Prix racing that they've been there all the way through <laughs> well apart from the Repsol Honda livery then uh, no I mean like the uh, the the, uh, the the Pepsi Suzuki I loved but uh, but the Kajiva I mean the best looking bike of all time was simply the Kajiva just because it was just stunning just everything color um uh, shape everything yeah i'm actually just a big fan of any bike from the cigarette era to be honest because they had such they had such huge amounts of money to spend on the marketing of the bikes and and the marketing of the team that they could spend a fortune on making sure the liveries look great i always love the lucky strike suzuki and things like that the uh marlboro yamaha's always look great and it was the same in formula one as well like i, I, I if uh, you look at when uh, West came in with McLaren in 97. That was a great-looking Formula 1 car. And the cigarette companies just... I, I thought that they always made uh, made great-looking liveries. And do you know what? I never once wanted to smoke. So they were really shitty in terms of marketing for me, but I thought they made really nice-looking cars and bikes. Yeah, I think um, I, I would have to add, if you're talking about... Um tobacco liveries uh, Max Biaggi and Aprilia's Chesterfield livery from the uh, the mid 90s 94, 95, 96 especially in 95 when he was running in the well 95, 96 when he was running the number one plane um, plus those mid 90s Aprilia 252 strokes were just perfection just perfection on two wheels lovely looking little bikes just compact uh, beautifully designed and uh, well in that particular livery there was just all black with uh, flashes of luminous yellow and uh, some red as well I thought that just looked fantastic, but yeah, I would definitely echo your guys, uh, your guys' thoughts on um, on uh, the Pepsi Suzuki. Obviously, uh, yeah, Kaczynski's Kajiva early nineties was great, and uh, yeah, I think some of Freddie Spencer's um, Hondas in the early eighties were also absolutely to die for. Uh, the first ever NSR that he rode, I think, in nineteen eighty four with the number one plate on the side. 
it was just great as well. So uh, yeah, I would uh, I put those guys put those bikes right at the top of uh, top of my list. Oh, if we're looking at super bikes, you'd have to say Fogarty's nine one six from the the early nineties as well. That was just sublime still looks fantastic yeah i I think the general um uh, consensus is that motorbikes are awesome yep something along those lines (laughs) i think it's fair to say that (laughs) okay right so moving swiftly on guys we've got uh, two or three more here one is from uh phil gardner that's at swings underscore guitars he wants to know if races have to be run without spectators what way will that affect the atmosphere at qatar well, I mean, we were all, all three of us were there and uh, there were no spectators um, and there was no one in the paddock. And yes, it really f- did feel different. Normally, it, uh, despite the fact that there's only, you know, somewhere between six and 7,000 people turn up to the race at Qatar, uh, there still is some kind of a buzz there. Uh, there's not... A, the paddock isn't packed, but there are people in and out, and there's sort of, you know, like a liveliness or whatever. And um, it really felt much more like a test than it felt like a race, the, just having the Moto 2 and the Moto 3 class there. So it, 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 it genuinely, surprisingly, actually made a difference. So um, if we do go to Qatar, and it doesn't look like we will go back to Qatar, um, and, they, uh, and they do hold a race there and no spectators are allowed... It will make a difference. Um, it, I, it might not. You probably won't notice the difference so much on TV, but actually being at the uh, being at the track, you really will notice the uh, notice the difference a lot more. Yeah, I think it's going to depend on the track as well. Somewhere like Hareth is going to be very different, whereas somewhere like Aragon won't be that different because of how the crowds are spaced out at each of the different circuits. But like Dave said, it will end up feeling a lot more like a test. And that will also be exaggerated by the fact that teams are going to be limited on their sizes. So in Moto2, I think it's where you get a dozen personnel per team. In uh, MotoGP, it's, I don't know, 40 people or something like that. So instead of the paddock being really busy as well, you're going to have a skeleton crew for each team. So that's going to exaggerate it even further. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, we've got uh, two more here, guys. One is from, oh, I'm getting chills just reading this question out. Sofa Racer has got in touch. My God, we are in the presence of royalty here, guys. I uh, now finally have that uh, uh, story that I'll tell my grandkids. I was on a show which Sofa Racer once rode into, and he wants to know. I'm going to start this with, uh, with you, Steve. He wants to know, have you ever sat in a media center with 15 minutes to go on the grid, heard a certain rider say, I'm going with this tire combination and thought, he's an idiot. Those those tires will be shot in 10 laps. Basically, only to see your thought proved right. Far, far, far better than that, Neil. I've been down on the grid and doing the grid interviews and talking to riders whenever you've had changeable conditions and things like that. You find out what tires they're using. And as you're walking away from that rider, you're on your phone, you're placing your bets, and you know that it's going to work out in your favour and there's no better feeling around than that. Um, I've had the opposite. I've uh, heard a rider say, oh, I'm going to go with soft, soft and um, uh, thought, oh no, he's never going to make it and then uh, watch them win the race. So um, yeah, no, it's uh, uh, as a rule, 
the riders know better than we do, or the riders and the teams know better, better than they do. And sometimes uh, there's even a conflict between the riders and the teams because the rider wants to go with a particular tyre, but the team says it won't last, or Michelin says, well, you could try it, but it's not going to last. Uh, and so sometimes they'll go with it and it works out. Sometimes they'll be banned from going with it. So it's, uh, it's, it's always a bit of a battle. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's it all comes down to what that team and that rider think is the best decision to make for that race, and they don't make any of those decisions thinking in terms of oh, this isn't going to work. They make all those decisions on the assumption that it is going to work. It is going to be the right decision to make. Now, obviously, in different circumstances, it can be a big risk, and the most obvious example of that is always going to be whenever it's about to rain or whenever it has rained and it's drying out and different things like that, and you're able to sort of read into the tea leaves a little bit at that stage but uh, typically you know you look at what different bikes work, use round on round year on year and you know a Ducati might be with a softer rear tire than a Kawasaki on a traditional basis in World Superbike so it's where if you see suddenly the uh, Ducati and the Honda and the uh, Kawasaki riders are using the same tires that's something that stands out to you compared to normal so you kind of just look at the patterns that develop over time and that's where you then think oh well suddenly this is a risky decision for rider x y and z just because of how it compares to where they traditionally go with their tires yeah i think you're normally uh, pretty aware that most teams and uh, factories have a sound idea of what works best for their particular rider their particular bike their particular setup so it's not so often that you're you're really screaming out at the uh, at the screen saying what are you doing when you see the tire selection sheet. There's maybe been a couple of uh, a couple of surprises here and there, but I think um, what usually gets us journalists up out of our seats more often is uh, watching the uh, the flag the flag races. I can remember two, maybe even three specific occasions where journalists have been almost standing up, shouting at the screen, into the pitch, you know, knowing that basically the time is right for the riders to enter only for them to to kind of miss time at all um i'm thinking back to uh, the saxon ring in 2016 when marquez pitted before everyone and i think it was rossi uh, a couple other guys who were who were scrapping at the front and it was clear that um it was it was right to uh, to pit um, when marquez did but they stayed out an extra couple of laps and everyone was just groaning basically because the longer they stayed out, basically the, the chances of Rossi catching Marquez up in the championship got sl- that little bit slimmer. Um, but then, of course, that's uh, that's when we have the benefit of uh, of seeing every single split sector on the timing screens. And uh, it's obviously massively different when you're uh, out on the track and just going off your, uh, your pit board signals. Yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago uh, the, when we talked about the 2015 season. The 2015 race at Misano was a classic for that when it sort of rains. Uh, it's raining, it's dry, and then it starts raining, and then it stops raining. And um, uh, that turned into an absolutely fantastic race. And that was really... The, those are the times when you were screaming. Certainly, I think, with um, uh, with Rossi and Lorenzo, both, just the entire uh, press room was standing there screaming, you know, what the hell do you think you're doing? Um, why aren't you going in and, uh, and changing tasks? Everyone else is. So, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing because we, as Neil said, you know, everyone in the media center, everyone on a pit wall, they get the splits sector by sector and you're able to see, okay, well, such a rider has changed on to slicks or changed on to wets. This is what their times are in each sector relevant or relative to the leader or whoever hasn't pitted. And 
you know, you can look at it and instantly say, oh, he needs to change. But that rider won't know that until he comes past the pit board the next time. So suddenly the time to change might be two laps before you change, but that can realistically be the the first chance that the rider really gets to see that it was their chance to, to pit. Just briefly, David, why are you glaring at Alicia Spargo in your profile photo? What did he do? Um, I'm, I'm listening intently. That's what I'm doing. I'm listening very carefully to what he has to say um, because uh, he was uh, uh, he was telling me he was giving me very important information about the Suzuki. The Aprilia. No, no, the Suzuki at the time. That that particular picture was uh, t- uh, taken when he was at Suzuki. Ah, okay. Certainly so was, you- Dave, and I still haven't been paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me, Dave, that when you're glaring at me packing up my things slowly from the media center after a long day and you're staring daggers at me, you're actually listening intently. I'm, I'm thinking very, very deeply about uh, something really important. Yeah, you, how much how much you despise me, how much you can't stand me. <laughs> Fair. I'm not at liberty to discuss that at this moment. <laughs> okay. And lads, we'll, we'll finish uh, up this uh, week's show with uh, one final question that we have from uh, Dan Beattie. That's at DanBeattie94. Thanks for getting in touch, Dan. And he's uh, putting a bit of an imaginary situation in front of us. He says, imagine it's 2021, Valencia, the end of the season. Alex Marquez has yet to go down a podium. Mark Marquez has already won the championship. Alex is running P2 behind his older brother, just behind Mark. Three laps to go. Does Mark go any easier on Alex than he would with anyone else? You see, if this had been Mark was running P3 and Alex was running P4, then you could think, yeah, he might go a little bit easy. Let Alex get his first podium. But Alex is already going to be getting his first podium. So Mark might as well get the win bonus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, um, uh, again, if it was uh, Alex leading... Uh, and Mark behind, then Mark would not, might be a little bit more gentle in his passing attempts. He wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be all or nothing to try to get the win. Um, but if he's already ahead, he's not going to let Alex pass. Uh, it's hard to overstate just how important winning is to these people, you know, finishing ahead of someone. They sacrifice their entire lives just to, finish slightly ahead of another rider so um uh it doesn't matter that, he, that he's brother but they're, they're generally with their brothers because we see this with the espargaros as well the espargaros treat each other with a fraction more respect than they would treat um uh, other riders uh but they're just as competitive against each other as they're competitive against anyone else i mean um no one is going to no, – there are no gifts in MotoGP or in World Superbikes or in any very high-level sport. You don't give things away um, unless it's for a very particular reason. Um, and just being someone's brother, I think, is is, is not enough. So, no, I, I, I don't think um, – uh, I don't think Alex – I don't think Mark gives Alex anything. Yeah, and I think I'd agree with Dave that maybe if it was Alex in front of Mark by two tenths and you're into the last lap, maybe then Mark just waits for a clear overtaking opportunity as opposed to just barging down the inside and and making the move like you might on someone else. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, Aston 2015, uh, shall we say, it's Alex Marquez instead of Valentino Rossi. Uh, uh, Mark doesn't make the pass uh, into the GT chicane at the, uh, on the last lap. So uh, that that's that's how how I would uh, how I would put it. I mean, ironically, he came off worse there anyway because Rossi won. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it, he's going to do. He's going to be fractionally more careful, and that's that's the limit of his uh, uh, of his generosity. Dan, you heard it here first. So thank you very much for that one. Um, okay, so that pretty much brings us to uh, a close for this week's edition of the Panic Pass podcast, uh, a show that, uh, well, was uh, focusing on you, the listener, uh, today. So I would like to send one final thank you out to everyone that posted questions on Twitter and indeed Patreon. Um, it's probably time to remind you that we've got some social media channels which you should be following. That's um, at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter. Facebook.com forward slash Panic Pass Podcast. And then also, if you fancy donating uh, to us on Patreon, uh, which really greatly helps keeping the show going, uh, then you can do that. That's patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast, uh, where you can sign up and become a member. Uh, for as little as $3 a month. And that gives you access to a whole load of exclusive content that uh, is not quite available to normal listeners. So thank you very much, Steve. And thank you very much, David, for being uh, on the show. Thank you. Yep. Thanks very much, Neil. And thanks, everyone, for your questions. Exactly. And we'll be back again this time next week with another new edition of the Paddock Pass Pod. Speak to you then. <laughs>